This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you, Alex. Um, great to be here with you guys and uh, try and make this interesting and, and um, informative and maybe a little educational. So I want to start with a, a slide from a conference that I spoke at at, at Harvard a few years ago. And um, I thought it was an interesting perspective on the whole thing. Hands, human hands, what Aristotle called the tool of tools, the symbol of our distinctive body form and unique capacities of mind, our comprehension, creativity, and control over the world in which we dwell. And now, like no no time before, these hands are um, a dramatic symbol of our recent progress in gene editing. These hands are now turning to operate on our very selves. So it's clear we're entering an amazing moment in human history. Seventy years ago, Aldous Huxley, anticipating the transformation of human life through advances in biology as the final and most searching revolution, asserted this really revolutionary revolution is to be achieved not in the external world, but in the souls and flesh of human beings. In the decades since the first publication of Brave New World, amid the accelerating pace of discoveries in genetics, developmental biology, and the laboratory production of life, there's been increasing appreciation of Huxley's prescient concerns. Yet throughout this period, limitations in our tools and technologies, techniques for specific and efficient modification of genomes have been a major constraining factor for advances in biotechnology. Now, however, in what MIT Tech Review has called the biggest biotech discovery of the century, CRISPR-Cas9 and related techniques, and there are a whole panoply of new techniques emerging, they promise collectively easy-to-do, inexpensive, and highly precise genetic deletions, insertions, functional manipulations of genomic process across the full spectrum of living beings. It's uh, obvious to anybody who thinks about it. This holds great promise for advances in agriculture, animal studies, basic biomedical research and therapy, but at the same time, it opens profound questions about our role within the natural order and the use of these technologies in shaping the human future. So CRISPR, the name CRISPR, it's, it's an acronym. It um, describes its original um, uh, recognition in the, in the bacteria. Somebody noticed there were clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats in the DNA. And so that's how it got its name. CRISPR-Cas9 is a modification, a human modification of that, using the tools to, to operate on all levels of biology. Um, CRISPR-Cas9, it's adopted, as I said, from bacteria, but it's from a kind of immune system that the bacteria deploy to protect themselves from viruses. They, they cut up the viruses with this mechanism. It's been described as a, as a genetic scalpel um, 
or molecular scissors, but really it's more rightly compared to a Swiss army knife because it's, it's um, so diverse and so versatile. It's composed of two basic elements, a guide RNA sequence that identifies and attaches to a specific stretch of DNA and an endonucleus, which cuts the DNA, allowing a range of operations on the gene segment. And by the way, can also attach to RNA and you, you can modify messenger RNA and other RNA applications. As scientists continue to explore the CRISPR system's many natural variations and selectively engineer clever new modifications in its targeting and operations, they're developing a whole new genetic toolkit with functional applications at every level of genomic process. The breadth and flexibility and the precision of these new tools is opening a vast increase in the range and complexity of experimental possibilities, theoretical insights, and practical applications. So just to give you a little, oh, I didn't show you these. These are the, just shows you how it attaches to DNA and that it has a scissor effect or modified end that does operations. Just to give you some idea what, what this, what uh, this tool is able to do, as Jennifer Doudna, the, the Nobel laureate that was mentioned in the introduction, she said advances in gene editing are enabling us to rewrite the very language of life. And that's very fundamental power. Um, genes from different species can be inserted into agricultural crops to provide drought resistance, more rapid growth or enhanced nutritional value, or for more efficient photosynthesis and biofuel production. Genetically modified plants can be engineered as sources of new pharmaceuticals. Um, likewise, farm animals can can uh, be used for this purposes. And there's a joke in science, it's pharmaceuticals, F-A-R-M. Um, so recently there was, oh, and, and of course, producing organs that are more tissue compatible and devoid of the viruses that often affect the, in this case, the pigs. Really amazing new possibilities. I read recently there was a, the scientists are working to produce gluten-free wheat, for example. And so the, the range of possibilities is absolutely fantastic in terms of products, but more fundamentally and probably more significantly is the range of research possibilities. Individual genes can be strategically disrupted or selectively altered to the precision of a single DNA base pair to study their role in healthy development and disease or to produce stem cells that, that are engineered to evade immune rejection and therefore suitable for universal transplantation. Uh, together with deepening knowledge of genomics and our exponential increase in gene sequencing capacities, these new tools for understanding and control of the most basic processes of life herald revolutionary advances in biotechnology. Uh, you can imagine if you can modify stem cells, you could do a lot in therapy, you can do a lot in studying developmental biology. Um, and unlike previous gene editing methods, it's cheap, easy to use, and is swept through labs around the world very, very quickly. I, I think I read in the first two years there were 5,000 published
publish papers using CRISPR alone. So in the few years since its introduction in 2012, it's attracted billions of dollars in venture capital from private companies exploring medical and commercial applications. The scope and versatility of this technique promises amazing possibilities, transformational impact, as great as the discoveries of electricity, synthetic chemistry, and nuclear physics. You know, as I was laying out those, some of the things it could do, I think actually most of us, even those of us educated in these realms and focusing on it, haven't even begun to remotely imagine what's going to be done with this. It's a little bit like the App Store. I know the guy here in Silicon Valley who invented the App Store. And he said when he invented it, he thought, well, well there'll be a couple dozen good. Well, there'll be a couple dozen good. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, he said there'll be, there'll be a dozen applications. They'll be very good. And, um, and now there's, what, tens of thousands of apps. So really amazing, amazing moment. So I, I want to make sure that you guys can hear me. Can, Alex, can you make sure, can you confirm that you can hear me? Yes, I can, I can hear you. Um, okay. Just as a reminder, if everyone could stay muted um, during the presentation, that'd be great. Thank you. Uh, that's, as I heard a voice, that's okay, no problem. We're, we're just having a little talk here. Um, Okay, so I think Jennifer Dowden is not exaggerating this. We're standing on the cusp of a new era, one in which we have primary authority over life's genetic makeup and all its vibrant and varied outputs. Really an amazing moment. And while many of these advances will be welcomed as what we call, what we call in Silicon Valley, constructive disruption is a word here. Um, many of these, many of the products of this new technology will be constructive disruption, providing urgent and uncontroversial progress in biomedical science, agriculture, and environmental ecology. The power and scope of operation of these new tools delivering previously unimagined possibilities for reworking or redeploying natural biological process. But some of these have a startling have startling implications. So I'll just lay out a couple of them. Already science have, scientists have placed firefly genes into mice so they glow in the dark. And here's, here's an albino lizard. Oh, that's a bunny that grows in the dark. And here's an albino lizard um, that um, was recently created with this technology. And, and these are dramatic, but they, they probably don't really adversely affect. It's not in any way cruel to these creatures, I don't think. Um, but now we may be able to program new, even new behaviors into animals, not just body forms and new physiology. And I think it's very possible that we'll learn how to alter mating, natural mating barriers, creating entirely new hybrid species or modify developmental programs to allow the production of creatures with unnatural anatomical features or body proportions for art projects or purposes of amusement. And I think you're, it's very likely that those of you who are college students will end up taking your children or at least your grandchildren to the recombinant zoo where they'll have creatures that nobody's ever seen before. Um, that is if the ethical issues are considered acceptable. But nowhere is this te new technology more fraught with ethical challenges than its potential over human life. 
beyond the prospect of the interventions mentioned above, there are already proposals by serious and well-respected scientists for projects of human-animal chimeras. Um, th this, by the way, don't get worried. This is not, this is just a drawing. But um, we will re be able to produce unexpected um, creations with this technology. Um, and, and by the way, back quite a long time ago, almost 100 years ago, the, the Soviet Union attempted to join humans and chimps to produce what, what they called the human Z. Um, I have that slide somewhere. Let me go forward and see it. There it is. And already scientists backwards, scientists have put human genes into monkeys. This was done in China, um, an attempt to make them smarter. Um, there'll be all sorts of things they'll try to do with it. Not only that, but some scientists um, are calling for the de-extinction of human ancestral species as we get an ever more precise reading of the Neanderthal genome. We may be able to edge over into doing that. Neanderthals or Denisovans or or so forth. And furthermore, um, there are talk, of, I think some people are very serious about this, engineering human beings so we can produce the perfect astronaut. Um, so very amazing possibilities. Here's another one. Oh, there's the astronaut. Here's another one. I, I guess this is a joke, but somebody suggested if we could engineer people to be just one-fifth the size, then we'd really have a way to address global warming and could invite more people to the table and, and not use so many resources. But um, that actually raises a very interesting and challenging question of what kind of modifications can we actually do with this? And in what ways does the very meaning of our lives and the very size of our being relate to what is significant and central to human existence? So among those who envision uh, dramatic alteration of human nature are the transhumanists. They're an international intellectual and cultural movement advocating technologically mediated enhancement of human intellectual, physical, and psychological capacities. And they, they really have a dramatic um, intention for what they're going to do. Um, I've had several of the leaders of the transhumanist society in my classes at Stanford. They're intelligent and serious-minded students. They view our current species form as an evolutionary stepping stone and believe that it's human nature and human destiny to improve ourselves. They argue that our advancing technologies offer us the opportunity constraints and cruelties of, a, of an amoral evolutionary process to lift humanity to the next level of personal and social flourishing as genetically enhanced human-machine hybrid post-humans. And um, their logo is H+. Anybody in school knows what that means. So these ideas have been promulgated in the extremely popular books of Yuval Noah Harari. Um, I, I have mixed feelings about it because Harari is a, a, a very graceful and thoughtful writer, but sometimes, to, to put it tactfully, he gets a little out of his depth when speaking as a matter of science. So this quote, sapiens will upgrade itself into another kind of being 
Within a couple of centuries at most, Earth will be populated by beings who are different from us in their cognitive and physical abilities. I actually doubt that. And I would be, I'd like to uh, debate Harari, a, a public forum on this matter. But um, let's explore what, what might be possible. And indeed, he's right that these will be challenging questions. And there might be things we could do that will be very, very significant. So, so turning aside for a moment from these speculative prospects and this hyperbolic projection and turning to more immediate and practical concerns, it's clear that there are many considerations in the wise use of these new technologies, commercial, social, legal, and all of these are extremely important. But since I'm a physician, I, I want to speak to you about their direct application to human life in medical research and clinical care and in beyond human uh, beyond therapy in the pursuit of happiness in human perfection. Um, I, I slipped and said beyond human, and that, of course, is the challenge. Will we alter ourselves in a way where we write ourselves right out of our own story? So let's go, let's go to the very bottom of this question, to its most immediate and obvious uses. And, and I mentioned beyond therapy because you may think, well, that's just a fantasy, that's science fiction, but if you stop and you look at what medicine's doing on other fronts, you realize people are eager to have medical technology lift their lives along the gradient of their appetites and ambitions. So starting at the bottom, we get this quote from Jennifer Doudna. We may be nearing the beginning of the end of genetic disease. What a moment in the human story. For the first time in our long and troubled history, the tools appear to be in place for the conquest of diseases that have burdened our species from the dawn of time. So Jennifer, I think, is right. Already researchers are reporting dramatic gene editing advances in mouse models of a wide range of genetic disorders, including sickle cell anemia, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, and Fanconi's anemia. In um, and, and CRISPR is now starting to enter clinical trials, which is a very exciting moment for many people, especially for people with severe sickle cell disease. So just let me explain to you how this would work. In sickle cell anemia, um, this is accomplished by removing circulating blood cells from the patient. Um, just so you know, they, most, most of the blood is generated in the marrow and in a few other places, but the bone marrow is the main location of generation of blood cells. And the hematopoietic stem cells, which are the foundational cells which generate the blood cells, are lodged there mostly, but some of them circulate, and they're actually drugs that can cause those that are lodged in the marrow to enter the circulation in greater abundance. When that happens, they can then take, draw a blood sample and and using high technology, they can select out cells that are the hematopoietic stem cells and alter them, and then put them back into the bloodstream where they relocate in the marrow cavities and produce blood cells that don't have the sickle trait. And, and just to show you, this, this is what a normal um, blood cell looks like. It's a, it's a smooth biconcave disc. You go back to the sickles, what happens in sickle cell anemia is these, these jagged-looking cells clump in the small arteries of the, of the body and block the blood flow. 
and cause excruciating pain. I took care of a, a little 11 year old boy who, who was in to the, the Stanford hospital in his 200th hospitalization. Can you imagine in just a decade, he'd been hospitalized 200 times, very, very troubling episodes. And this little fellow was such a brave little guy. And I thought, boy, one day we'll be able to cure that. And that, that day may be coming very soon. There's already examples of people who appear to be cured now of sickle cell anemia. So this same kind of technique can be done with a wide range of, of cells, um, especially when, when these cells can be pulled out of the body, genetically altered and re-injected into the tissue or organ or wherever they're supposed to be. But it can also be applied to hard to reach and fragile organs um, because scientists have developed a range of clever ways of directly delivering instruction-bearing CRISPR complexes using vehicles such as liposomes, which are fat globules, or specially engineered viruses that potentially preferentially target the desired location to, to transform the cells without having transformations take place other places. So it can actually target even specific regions in the brain. So we are really looking at an amazing potential advance in therapies um, in, in the immediate future, some, but in the long haul, many. For the first time, we'll have the power to treat hundreds, perhaps thousands of such genetic diseases for conditions for which we currently have no effective therapy. There are, roughly speaking, about 10,000 known single gene diseases. 95% of them have no effective treatment. So you can see there's a great need out there. It's obvious that in certain cases, the earlier the genetic intervention can be made, the better. The better the treatment outcomes and the easier on the patient. And if we're going to prevent disease from, from their onset, we'll need to go early on and alter as early as possible. So this has reawakened the long-held hope that we might one day be able to make targeted DNA modifications directly at the level of the human gametes, sperm and egg, or early embryos, and thereby remove a genetic disease once and for all from a family lineage. But you can see right away, this raises challenging questions. Questions about the degree of acceptable risk, what type of conditions would count as worthy targets of our interventions, and so you look at this little guy, this guy has a, a Miller's syndrome. Miller's syndrome is, it's, it's a tragic disorder. You can see it affects multiple dimensions of the body. By the way, most gene diseases are syndromes affecting many things. I'll show you why that is in a minute. But um, that, that's a pretty compelling case for an intervention. But what about this? Well, what about this one? This is this is a disorder called Leshnyan's disease. It's a metabolic deficiency. And these, tragically, these children actually chew their fingers off, sometimes chew their lips off. So you look at a, and they do have, have mentally, mentally they're capable and they live into their teens, um, at least. And, and you wonder, well, well, what risk should we take? Because they do stay alive, but I think it's a pretty compelling case too. But what about this? Is this, a, is this a disease uh, or is it a difference? This is albinism. 
uh, it's simply a melanin gene change uh, difference. And, and people with albinism can live long and happy lives, although there's some stigmatization. You might know already that in Africa, they think they have a superstition about this. In some regions of Africa, they're actually hunted down and cut into parts to be eaten as cures for disease. So there's always some strange social dynamics going on in, in uh, changes to our physical appearance. But uh, what are we to make of this? What if it blends down into parental preferences for hair, eye color, color statue? None of this will be easy. And this is the reason why genetic diseases are syndromes. It's because genes are not like Legos. They're not like Mr. Potato Head. We can't just swap out parts. Um, genes specify proteins. and Proteins interact to produce traits. Genes, gene products are like primary colors on an artist's palette. They get mixed together before being applied to the canvas. So protein, you know, genes produce, they code for proteins and proteins interact with other proteins as they produce traits. And most traits are affected by many genes and most genes are affected by many, uh, most genes affect many traits. This is for those of you in science, that's, that's uh, pleiotropy and polygenic inheritance. So the point is this, that, that um, so many conditions we would care about, intelligence, beauty, longevity, result from interactions among many genes and would not be simple to alter. Um, in other words, you, you might be targeting some dimension of a person's expression that the gene affects, but you might get a dozen or two dozen or maybe hundreds of other effects, just like in genetic disease, you one single gene deficiency produces changes in multiple organ systems. So um, it's not going to be easy to do this. Um, still, there are a few genes with direct impact. So for example, if you want red hair, oh, I was using that slide to imitate to to uh, introduce the notion of intelligence. Intelligence is probably the product of, at the very least, hundreds and probably thousands of genes. In fact, in a certain sense, since intelligence relates to your whole body, it's about the entire production of your genome. But, but what could we do? Well, if you want red hair, we probably could give you a red-haired baby uh, as it becomes safe to do it. Um, red hair is called, caused, in some cases, by a single gene. And furthermore, even a partial impact might make some difference. As we learn more about the genetic basis of things like depression, autism, Parkinson's disease, we may be tempted to develop preemptive germline, inter germline interventions. So this is Harvard geneticist George Church. And um, he's, a, he's a very interesting guy, a very nice guy. I know him, and, and, and he and I have had some very good conversations. And he he's listed, made a list of what he calls rare protective variants of large impact, which exist naturally in the human genome, gene pool, uh, but only in a few people, okay? And these include variants in, in uh, here's a list of them, a couple slides of lists of this, variants in coding for extra strong bones, lean muscles, 
lower risk of coronary artery disease, cancer, diabetes, so low odor. I'm not sure what that one's about, but anyway, you get the point. Some things that people would either be more healthy from or more socially desirable from, I don't know. Um, anyway, he thinks if these were more common, they might improve the general health of the society. And you can imagine right now if, if there were genes that would, would um, protect your babies against coronaviruses, they might be in style. Um, for alteration, that is. In response to such suggestions, and and, and um, George Church is is he's a, he's a thoughtful guy, and he's just asking these questions in a polemical sort of way. Why, why don't we think about whether this would be good to do? And and so he's provoked significant responses, and among them is a, a, another very thoughtful sort of anti-interventional activist. Um, he's not a, against therapies. He's just um, cautioning prudence. Uh, Stuart Newman says, um, we will open the door to attempts to pick and choose other characteristics because definitions of normality will vary. And then, of course, in the social issues of access and how much risk parents are willing to take and what society should sell and they can and can't do. So you can see right away that this is an enormously complicated effort. You know, in the recent scandal over, what was it called, Varsity Blues, parents getting their kids into college, you can imagine the future, some parents might be lured into thinking if they did certain genetic modifications, they'd be, be a sure candidate for for Williams or Stanford. So pressure people under pressure and, and um, any advantage they can get, they may try. So that means a very significant social policy issue. Um, so on a less dramatic level, many point to the steady increase in medical interventions for purposes beyond therapy. And that's, that's, um, Oh, I, I didn't actually mean to show this right now. So, so beyond the question of, what what we will we will uh, intervene in? Go back in history and ask yourself: What have people considered not contra, not not beyond therapy, but actual therapies, or in the sense of interventions for the sake of health? And this this is a fairly fairly famous picture now in the last six six or eight months. And and uh, I wonder if, if any of you actually know what this disease so-called disease was, uh, and I say was because unfortunately it's no longer considered a disease. This, is, this was given the name Drapetomania, and it was found in the textbooks of the antebellum south, and drapetomania means a mania or a passion to run away, and obviously the treatment here was whipping. So it's, isn't that amazing how corrupt that can be, that you can label a uh, a person who wants to escape into freedom as having a disease and and deserving a treatment or a punishment. Um, and what about this? And we all know the tragic meaning of Nazi Germany, so-called genetic hygiene, and and eliminating people who who didn't measure up to their standard of what they thought was beautiful and strong and healthy humanity. Um, if you've never seen the Holocaust Museum exhibit on deadly medicine. I think it's now a permanent exhibit. It is just astonishing to go in there and see that. I would highly advise you to do it. And it's partly astonishing because it was 
just regular old normal doctors who cooperated with it, not monsters, just people who were part of the sort of thought process of their day, which, you know, any of you who know anything about the history of eugenics know that, that um, it was the prevailing philosophy of the so-called best and brightest people. We recently, by the way, just took the name of David Starr Jordan off of a building at Stanford. He was our first president, but his name isn't going to be there anymore because he was one of the founders of the American eugenics movement. So there's deep questions involved in what, how you even see disease or how you define um, the, even the medical use of this stuff, not to mention it, its use beyond therapy. But it, at a deeper and more dramatic, less dramatic level, um, many point to the steady increase in medical interventions for purposes beyond therapy as legitimate avenues of medicine. The traditional role of medicine has been to cure disease and alleviate suffering, to restore and sustain the patient to a natural level of functioning and well-being. The medical arts were in the service of a wider reverence and respect for the order of the created world. This idea was put succinctly by the, the Roman physician Galen when he said, the physician is only nature's assistant. But now, with the powers of our advancing biotechnology, there's a new paradigm one of liberation, technological transformation in the quest for happiness and human perfection. Grounded in the widespread practice and general acceptance of cosmetic surgery, slowly but steadily, the scope and purpose of medicine are being extended along the gradient of our appetites and ambitions to encompass dimensions of life, not previously considered matters of health, but natural human variations or limitations. You just look at the where we've come from, even in my lifetime as a physician. When I was a medical student, male pattern baldness was not considered a disease. Now it's a multi-billion dollar treatment. This is Rogaine for baldness. Um, so it, this is an ad worth pausing and pondering here. If you're concerned about hair loss, it says, see your doctor. Right, that's a dramatic transformation itself. But if you look at the small print, it says, if you're losing your hope, you know, if you're losing your hair, you no longer have a reason to lose hope. Wow. I mean, that's so clever. So they paint this picture. They, they take this photograph, obviously a photograph, not a painting, but they, they, that, that poor guy, he's, he's sort of in his probably early forties, losing his hair. It's late afternoon of autumn in the beach, any of the waning tides of life. And he he's losing his hope because he's losing his hair. You just sow that idea into your society and you, you've got a market. So where are we going from that? Well, we've got Rogaine for, for uh, baldness. We've got growth hormone for shortness. We've got birth control and Viagra to make our sexual lives what we want them to be. Um, we've got Provigil, a drug that alters, um, uh, that prolongs um, natural periods of, of attentive wakefulness. You can stay up. Uh, oh, I shouldn't tell you guys this. You use it at exam time, but, but this drug can keep you awake for a couple of days. Um, 
doesn't help you learning, I don't think. Um, anyway, seasonale, it's another drug, technological bypass to the monthly periodicity of our natural menstrual cycle. In all these ways, we've altered and revised the given frame of nature. Increasingly, we've come to expect from medicine, not just freedom from disease, but freedom from distress, struggle, and even the constraints of the natural life process from all that's unattractive, imperfect, or just inconvenient. What an amazing moment. Um, moreover, at least where I live out here in Silicon Valley, there's a general trend to regard life's challenges as bioengineering problems. And there's a fashionable fascination with biofluidity, interchangeable parts and fluid identities, and an almost religious commitment to utopian ideas of technological transcendence. <coughs> so acknowledging these challenging prospects, there is within the, <coughs> within the scientific community a growing apprehension and earlier, that earlier speculations about designer babies and even state-sponsored eugenics programs may now, at least to some degree, be technically feasible and thus matters for serious practical concern. Moreover, there's a worry that personal ambition, institutional competition, and even commercial interests, and I might add even military interests, may lead to imprudent and immature um, and attitudes and premature applications with potential clinical disasters which would indeed be damaging to the individuals, but also damaging to the positive purposes of the application of these technologies. So in light of these accelerating concerns in the face of the accelerating science, Jennifer Doudna gathered together several Nobel laureates and published a statement in the journal Science urging for urgent need for more open discussions of the merits and risks of human genome modification and calling for international discussion of these matters. Their central concern, of course, was the possibility of germline therapy, that it might be attempted with human gametes or embryos before it was safe and before it had been given proper depth of consideration uh, by the larger human community. Um, and so they organized this, this meeting at to take place at the National Academy. They were worried that people would be drawn into producing better children, tempted to try and make people smarter, produce better functional brains and so forth. And they were worried about the trends of human thinking about all of this. They re recognized that it's no longer science fiction, that we're becoming technologically capable and therefore potentially cold and calculating, serving in logical uh, extensions don't necessarily comport with with human meaning and human purpose and sense of self. So they called for this meeting and they held a, a, a National Academy International Summit. It wasn't actually that international. It included two other countries um, as co-sponsors at least. But they did take serious discussion of some dimensions of all this. Um, it was very amazing because... Before they could actually assemble this, Chinese scientists genetically modified some human embryos. So it made the, the 
the conference very real and vividly um, troubling. But those, those embryos were altered on, in ways that, that the embryos themselves were incapable of developing beyond a few days. And, and it was just a test, test run on whether you could actually successfully modify embryos genes. But it made the issue urgent, and they set out a, a special committee to to consider all this, and that took about a year, year and a half, and they organized a second gene editing summit for Hong Kong um, almost exactly two years ago um, this this week. In fact, it was the, the, the last week of, of November 2018. It was held in Hong Kong. And some, some of you, probably most of you, remember what came out just as this second international summit was beginning was the announcement of genetically modified twin baby girls that had been born in China. And, and um, it was like a bombshell. I, I, was, um, I have very special connection to this, this story because I know the scientists who did the work and on my way out through SFO, the airport in San Francisco, on my way to Hong Kong to this meeting, I received a phone call from the, the reporter, the journalist at MIT Tech Review, who wanted to know what I knew about it. And I didn't actually know the details, but I had strong concerns about what was happening. By the time I, I landed in, uh, in Hong Kong, I, I bought the Wi-Fi, which I never do when I travel, and it didn't work most of the way. But an hour out of Hong Kong, it started working. And all over the Internet, every news service had reported genetically modified humans. So when I, when I, when I landed, went to the, the venue for the hotel for the, for the uh, conference, that's all people were talking about. And that was the case for the next several days. On day two of this conference, the young Chinese scientist who did this modification, um, He Zhongkui, um, was given an hour and a half to speak. He was actually going to speak, but just for 10 minutes, but they had to clear a whole session. It was 36 hours after the announcement by then, and there was a huge auditorium, maybe a 1,000 people. A third of it was cordoned off for reporters, people had flown in from all over the world, and the there were camera lenses as long as cannons. I, I it was an amazing thing to see, and the, the stage was bare. And then they walked this guy J.K. is his, his nickname. They walked J.K. in. He was under armed guard because he was getting threats, death threats on the internet and texts and everything. Was, and um, they walked him in. The camera started clicking. It was just amazing. It was the cameras were going so loud that the, the moderator had to say no more pictures. And then there was the silence before he started talking. Anticipation. I don't think I've ever heard such a, a, a fraught silence. It was everybody knew that we in that auditorium were in the presence of, of the, 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 one of the most significant moments in human history. We were, we were certainly at the epicenter of, of, that week's challenge of, of meaning of being human. And JK laid out what he'd done. He was greeted with considerable hostility. And I, I guess that was fair enough because he 
sort of leapfrog without consulting his colleagues as had been requested. But I knew J.K. quite well because he was part of a conference. He was a guest at a conference that Jennifer Doudna and I organized together. And after the conference, I got to know him a little bit at the conference, but I was the convener, so I had to get to know everybody. But afterwards, a few months later, he emailed me and said, can I come and see you? I'm coming through Stanford. So he came and he he, uh, he and I had lunch together. And I thought, well, I'll just be nice to him. We'll have lunch and we'll talk and 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 I'll go back to work. But I didn't have anything scheduled in my, my calendar that day. And I ended up spending almost the entire afternoon talking with J.K. It was absolutely fascinating, but it was also very worrisome because I felt like he was rushing too fast. He subsequently came back several times to talk to me. And we had very interesting conversations. Just to give you a little flavor of what we were talking about, uh, the first thing he asked me was, what, what is this whole thing in the United States about embryos? Why do people care about embryos? And uh, it's just a fringe, right? And I had served on the president's council during the stem cell debates. And I, I told him, no, JK, it's not just a fringe. Probably half of the people in America are against the destruction of human embryos. And But he, he said to me, well, how can something this small, he held up his hands to his thumb and forefinger to, were together. How can something this small be as valuable as my two-year-old daughter? And I said to him, well, JK, your two-year-old daughter started out that small. And he pondered that for a while. And then we started talking about interventions in the natural world. And I said, well, you know, there is disease. And he kept citing all the need for genetic interventions. And I said, yes, there's very, very great need and very great moral imperative to intervene for the better of human beings. But there's also a lot to be lost. Nature may be maybe uh, fraught with with trouble, struggle, death, and suffering, but it's also the, the arena of great beauty and meaning and joy. It's like the nature is not to be, be, be toyed with in, in unthoughtful ways. And I cited the, 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 the redwood trees that are in my backyard. And I said, I, and he looked kind of blank. And I said, J.K., have you never seen a redwood tree? And he said, no, I don't know what they are. So I walked him out through a park behind Stanford, and and he just was amazed how beautiful they were. He loved that. Um, this is a picture of him in my my living my dining room as on our way out to that take that walk. And afterwards, he he um, asked me if we could take a walk next time he came. And um, but the next time he came. He was very ponderous and, and uh, serious. And he said, there's an important paper coming out. And I said, JK, have you implanted embryos? But he wouldn't tell me. And I said, JK, you've got to be careful. You're going to humiliate yourself, your country, and you're going to endanger your family. And so that was the background of that story. Well, what had happened was he'd done this work. And by the way, he got considerable encouragement for scientists, both in the United States and in China, so this was not just done in a corner. What he did was he modified a gene called CCR5 that, that affects the receptor on which the, the AIDS virus, HIV AIDS virus, the yellow thing here on the slide, by the, he modified that. And he had very good reasons in his mind for doing it because there are whole villages of people who have AIDS now in, in uh, China for whom there's a terrible stigma associated with his with, with having AIDS. 
and he thought he was doing a great social service. So, uh, and, and along the way, I started to worry because I sent him this article about designer babies, which I thought was a cautionary warning that they, the ethics council had said someday we might approve this. And he wrote back great news. I didn't actually think it was great news, but he did. So he was serious about trying to think through the, the social ethical issues, but he just didn't have the, the background for it, nor the sophistication of how policy works. And he's a great idealist. And for that reason, I was sad to see him taken down so badly. He's now he's now in his, I guess it's his beginning of his starting starting to be in his third year of being in prison. He gave him a three year sentence. It's disrupted his life dramatically and his family life has two young kids now. And it's tragic. But I want to show you an email that he sent me just the week after Hong Kong. I was supposed to go have dinner with him out at his, at his apartment with his family after this conference. But, of course, that blew up. But he did call me afterwards and said, can we talk? And we had a long series of, of two, three-hour conversations over, over the rest of, Jan- of December and January before he was taken into prison. And during that time, he sent me this email that he received from a fertility center in Dubai. And you can see from reading this, they're kind of, first of all, congratulating him, ingratiating themselves a little, and then saying, could you teach us how to do this? We want to take a course on how to do this. Oh my gosh, you've got to realize what tragedy this would lead to. Offshore clinics for stem cells are already problematic enough. Imagine if there are offshore centers for human genome editing. So it's a great warning to us about what could happen. You can see there using all the images of prosperity, wealth, high technology, and cutting edge science as though it's the future is going to unfold this way. Maybe it is, but it's not going to be without problems. So just in the last couple minutes, I want to address what I consider to be the truly serious imminent concerns on this, and that is relates to the uses of human embryos in, in this, both the science and the potential uh, development of clinical interventions. So this is George Daly, Dean of uh, Harvard Medical School, and he points out rightfully that gene editing could be used to engineer specific disease-related mutations in an embryo, which could then be used to produce embryonic stem cells that could act as models for testing drugs and other interventions for disease. George Daly is right. You could get, you could get astonishing new scientific tools out of this, but is it moral to do this? That's the question. We as a society have not come to terms with these questions. So my, my teacher, actually Nobel laureate Paul Berg and another Nobel laureate David Baltimore said to address complex diseases like cancer, we must carry our investigations to the most fundamental elements of living systems. And what kind of elements would you want to do more than to modify embryos to see specifically what the genes did? You would understand genetic develop, the genetic basis of development. And whereas the 20th century was all about molecular genetics, the 21st century is going to be all about developmental biology. So this brought us, brought, brings this issue back to a, a long-standing debate in the United States over federal funding, at least, of embryo research, because embryo research is embryo-destructive research in most cases. And 
that brings us to the stem cell issue history, which I lived in and was a participant in. And it was a very tense and difficult time. Most of you are probably too young to remember this, but it was the great divide of our country at the time. President George W. Bush gave his first address to the nation on stem stem cell research. And it was pitted as a argument between Bible thumpers and and great scientists. And and this is my own my own alumni magazine, I thought it was a, a crass caricature because there were good people on both sides making strong arguments. The the challenge of this is that the United States has something called the Dickie Wicker Amendment that is not encoded law, but it's renewed every year. And it makes it illegal to put NIH funds, federal funds, into projects that that injure, destroy, or even create human embryos for the sake of research. So President Bush simply could not fund this stuff. But the question was, what do we do with the stem cells? And especially the embryos that are left over from IVF clinics, and they're just going to get thrown thrown away. So I took this off of a political activist center, advocacy center. We fight because lives can't wait. They wanted to use the embryos, but it's an ironic statement because lives can't wait in the embryos too. Um, if you look at it from the standpoint of there being a, in earlier stages of a human life. So just to very quickly go through this, that's an eight-cell embryo on the sharp tip of a pen. Those who take a pro-life position, which is a position I take on these matters, these, this is the first stage of a continuity of existence toward the fullness of human life. In biology, the whole, as the uniform principle of life, precedes and produces the parts. Thomas Aquinas was very prescient in this drawing on Aristotle, recognizing there was a certain potency that was present in the substantial form of the embryo that would would promote and, and, and facilitate its development to the fullest expression of the human form. And so... From this perspective, all the way up at every stage of development, there's a certain distinctiveness and a certain dignity all the way through as you go forward through the amazing, majestic, I'd say, mystery of human development. But this was a very controversial statement to make. And many said, well, we can't wait for all these moral concerns because lots of patients are suffering profoundly. And this got to be a very bitter, bitter debate in this country. And if you think the politics is is bad now, take a look at this political ad from 2006. I hope it works. Next summer, I'm going on a camping trip with my friends. On my way home, I'll be in a car accident and I'll be paralyzed for the rest of my life. In 20 years, I'll have Alzheimer's. I won't recognize my husband or my kids. Next week, my mommy and dad are going to find out that I have diabetes. This is my congressman. Congressman Don Sherwood. He voted against federal funding for stem cell research. Is he a doctor? Is he a scientist? Why did Congressman Sherwood bet my life that he knows best? Help me. Help me. Who knows? Maybe I'm your mother. Maybe I'm your grandson. Maybe I'm your little girl. How do you know I'm not you? Stem cell research could save lives. Maybe yours or your family's. Someone you love. Only Congressman Sherwood said no. 
How come he thinks he gets to decide who lives and who dies? Who is he? Majority Action is responsible for the content of this advertising. So, I'm not sure, quite sure what happened to old Congressman Sherwood, but I, at the time I thought it was a vicious ad. And the problem here, this is a very central issue in this whole arena. The argument from suffering has no bottom. You can just make any kind of an argument of suffering, and there's a lot of suffering in the world. But there are other principles that need to wrap around the issue of suffering. And I think the more fundamental principle is the defense of human life. So we are facing an amazing moment in human history because now we have to choose how we're going to use our science. Are we going to find alternate ways to do this science, or are we going to go headlong into the use of human embryos. And I just want to lay out in, in two or three minutes four crucial questions you all need to help us think through because these are going to shape the character of our culture as we go forward from here on out. So, and bear in mind as you think about these, those who choose the beginnings of a road also choose its destination, which I, ironically I think is a, an old Chinese saying. So, First question, will we now endorse the use of human embryos for a wide range of studies of infertility and early development? Before, it was just about getting the stem cells. There are many, many uses we could make of early embryos to study. Uh, good science, but not necessarily good morals. Will we allow the creation of human embryos specifically for research purposes? Well, that that is a very real question because creating them with Genetic deficits would teach us a lot, but is it moral to do it? This is Rudolf Yenish from MIT who made the first transgenic mouse. He told me that when he made it, it cost $200,000, took two years, and and they only modified a single gene. Now, last year he told me they can, for, for $2,000, in three weeks, they can modify a mouse with a dozen genes. So you see how easy it is to do and how convenient as a tool it would be but is it moral to do it on human embryos? How many embryos is it okay to use in research if we do start creating them specifically for research? And there the question of, well, you, for one thing, you'd want to create multiple clones of embryos, then you have standardized uh, models to compare, to modify one and don't modify the other clone and see what the difference is. And what about eggs? Well, you can get eggs from early human embryos um, there are millions of eggs in an early embryo. By the time that that individual reaches adulthood, they've only got in the order of hundreds. And so from aborted fetus, would we take eggs from aborted fetuses? I mean, it's a terrible question, isn't it? Or maybe using induced pluripotent stem cells, you could, you could make uh, eggs. After all, they are just one type of cell line. And what would happen? Well, as this author said, they would become objects and would be used like objects if you could make embryos by the, by the truckload. And he says, we'll probably go through the same agonizing with, did with IVF. It would be terrible to begin with, but then it'll become a fact of life. Maybe 20, 30 years from now, I'll read in the newspapers that someone made 20,000 embryos, studied their development, and will say, well, it's okay, it's Good science, you know, but boy, imagine that. And then, of course, the real question, the deep question that's been that's begging to be asked when you start this kind of research is, will we allow research on embryos beyond 14 days, which is the current limit in England and, and a variety of other places? 
And if so, how long will we keep them alive? And according to what principles of moral evaluation and logic? And even my own colleague here at Stanford said he thought that would be okay. Read that quote. Um, It's really terribly difficult set of issues that we definitely need to address because there's pressure already in England to move on to 28 days. And, and um, we'll see where it all goes. And it's very, very fraught with meaning because there are many things you could do that would be from a scientific perspective or medical perspective, uh, very useful, but are they moral? I debated this guy, Julian Savalescu at a forum in New York city And he said, he's written this, it's morally required that we employ cloning to produce embryos or fetuses for the sake of providing cells, tissues, and even organs for therapy, followed by abortion of the embryo or fetus. And if you could genetically modify those those developing embryos and fetuses, you could get highly useful medical um, tissues. And I asked him, well, you believe you should create these things and implant them and abort them? How long would you allow them to grow? Three months? He said, yes, I'd do that. I said, six months? And he said, yes, I'd do that too. So you see what's coming. And this guy, by the way, is head of a major think tank in Oxford University, a bioethics think tank. So there's, there you have it. In um, such a would, – would it work? Well, there's a company in Silicon Valley harvesting – fetal parts from abortions and trying to make them used as useful as transplanted items. And um, there are papers, scientific papers that suggest they could be incorporated and used in human therapies. So I'll end with this slide or sort of end. I'll show you a few more things, but science is now, this is Erwin Chargoff was a very major figure in developing of genetics in the early, in the late 20th century. Columbia University professor. Science is now the craft of the manipulation, substitution, and deflection of the forces of nature. What I see coming is a gigantic slaughterhouse, an Auschwitz, in which valuable enzymes, hormones, and so on will be extracted instead of gold teeth. So I hope that's given you some idea. We start out from small beginnings, but things end in terrible ways. And um, if we have time, I'll come back to the slide, but I just want to get you to this one over here. What is madness to have erroneous perceptions and argue and to reason correctly from them? Uh, we're at a critical juncture in human history, which could lead to widening contrast, contrasting futures. I dwell in possibilities, but what do we mean? Gene editing is probably the most challenging scientific problem well, that we ever as a species have faced or will face. Um, it's not simple. There's a lot of horror in nature, but there's something to protect too. Biotechnology, it's the era we're in. Can't escape it. As we go forward, we better remember some perennial wisdom in all these matters and take seriously the, the mysterious wonder and beauty there is in the natural order and its significance. We are an amazing creature reaching for the stars, but we just got to be careful where we take it. There are those hands again. And just to end, by the mystery of God's purposes, we are at once creatures and creators, co-creators with the purposes of God. 
We are both spectators and actors in the great drama of existence. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Hurlbut. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely fascinating. Wow. Um, so if we, I guess we have a couple of, um, I guess about 15 minutes until I guess we're scheduled to end, but uh, I guess we have a, already a question from, um, from Sohan, if you would like to speak up. Uh, hi, Professor. Hello. Hi. Um, uh, thanks for the talk. Uh, I have a question regarding a uh, recent scientific uh, achievement with the genes of a, of a marmoset, um, like a, in, in the mid, mid this year for a science article, a gene was modified, uh, the, the genes of a marmoset, a non-human primate were modified so that the, in, it would increase the neocortex size and folding in its brain and the specimens were terminated at the fetal stage following this observation. So um, do you have any obje ethical objections to such experiments, that is, towards manipulating the genes of non-human primates and other non-human animals to potentially grant them human-like or even human-superior, possibly, cognitive capacities? Um, and if so... Uh, why and 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 if so, would you think that the termination of that fetus and others like it would be murder? So um, that's a that's a fascinating um, realm if you've introduced. Thank you for doing that. Um, I, I clearly you see how fraught with questions that kind of research is. In the broadest sense, I'm not against animal research. I have a great affection for the thoughts and living witness of St. Francis of Assisi. So I have a tenderness toward the animals. But having said that, I, I recognize that, that there are justified uses of animals in research. At least I believe there are. But of course, the first principle is we, we operate according to what we've discerned as the ethical treatment of animals. And that has to include nothing frivolous and just recreational on our part. Serious scientific inquiry or development of medical therapies is, is central to that. But also nothing that's deeply disrespectful to the animal nature or cruel and painful to the animal. But beyond that, I think that there are legitimate inquiries because of their scientific value and their potential of compassionate application in medicine for such, such uh, studies. I, I mean, there are many diseases of the, of the neurologic system that could be studied in this manner. But the question is, as we tiptoe over in creation of chimeric creatures, either hybrids of genes or actual cells and tissues, the question comes up, where is it beginning to create something that is not an animal um, model, but, a, but in some ways a human model? And, and what, what, qualities of human capacity would start to make that animal uh, not just potentially be considered a human mind or a human being at some level, but but experience the same kinds of things that make us not want to harm humans, um, kind of existential angst and, and disrespect or whatever it is. 
I don't certainly don't have an easy answer on this, but there are many, many science um, avenues that are opening these now, including not just chimeric creations, but organoids where we're creating what they call mini brains in a dish that are quite brains. But the, 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 the key there uh, to get more scientific about your question has something to do with the, the core architecture of the creature you're intervening in. If everything else is equal in the, in the core architecture of the marmoset, it may be more reasonable to do this. But if you start to, I mean, it's, it's quite obvious that the, the expanded neocortex of the human is crucial to the human difference and the difference that it makes in our awareness and our action in the world. And I, I agree, there are places in that spectrum of concern. I, I, I'm, my appointment is in the Department of Neurobiology. I talk with my, my, my colleagues about these matters, and they, they think they're very serious questions there too. So I don't know if that's a very satisfying answer, but I think one of the things we're going to have to do is, is start to think more clearly about what it is that defines human nature and what, it is, what those qualities endow us with more than just responsibility, but awareness and sense of being. I, I'm a co-leader on a project at Stanford with Bill Newsom, who is a, a neurobiologist who was co-director of the brain project at the NIH. And Bill is very, very broadly learned in neurobiology. We're co-directors of a project called The Boundaries of Humanity, Humans, Animals, and Machines in the Age of Biotechnology. Max mentioned this in the beginning. And that's exactly the kind of question we're going to examine in this project. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer, but it's a very deep question. Um, I believe we have a question from Katerina. Hi, Professor. Um, so I'm a medical student, and we were just going through this, I think, like last week. And one of the therapies that is coming up in like serious consideration are the uh, gene therapy for mitochondrial DNA disorders. And the treatment um, in theory is that there is going to be the fertilized um, embryo, right? And then they will remove the diseased mitochondria from the embryo and then um, harvest a healthy uh, mitochondria from a donor egg and then insert it into the embryo and then embryo develops. Um, I just wanted to know if we as like Catholics have any objection to this because the other embryo or the other egg is not fertilized. So that's my question. Uh, Katerina, where are you a medical student? I'm in uh, the University of Florida. Okay. Um, another great question. I, By the way, that video of the Chinese fertility clinic, that's run by the guy who actually did those so-called three-parent embryo mitochondrial uh, therapy um, cases in Mexico that you may have read about. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that guy's kind of, some say, people would say he's a cowboy scientist. Um, I, I know the guy who developed this, the, this technology, Shukrat Mitolopov. I know him quite well. And uh, Shukrat makes his arguments for this. I've always been uncomfortable about this because I, I, I feel as though we haven't established that, that whether or not the alterations of the mitochondria might alter something more in the, in the baby that's produced because I just can't quite believe the mitochondrial genome has evolved independently of the nuclear genome. 
And so I think there are quite a few scientists concerned about this, and I can't remember what it was, but I read something recently that really suggested we need to be more careful with this intervention. Sorry, I can't call it up right now, but I think, as you may know, there's a whole phenomenon in mitochondrial um, physiology called heteroplasmy, where where there's more than one um, form of a mitochondria in in a given person, and one tends to predominate. And I think what I read was that that even after this therapy, the the um, pathological variant of the mitochondria started to to dominate again. But there, there's a, I just think they should do multiple generations of primates to see what this does. Um, so I'm uncomfortable from a safety perspective. Um, it, and it, at the core of your question is something that somebody else will ask me about if I don't answer it now, so let me answer it now. Should we make interventions in, in embryonic life? And that's an extremely difficult question because, as I pointed out in my talk, once you start doing it, there's no logical stopping place. And then who decides? We have this, this kind of, um, I think it's kind of a misplaced mythology of parental rights over their, their, their progeny, whether they be in the womb and therefore a right to abortion or, or in the womb and a right to alter. To me, to me, there's a sort of a hands-off that ought to accompany um, development of a baby in the womb and it, 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 at least that should be our our prejudice to let if you will our preference to let nature operate i'm personally against abortion i i um i just think it's, a, it's it addresses serious issues but i think it's a wrong answer and you need to answer it with more love not less love but but um as to interventions i'm torn a little because i I have also seen very serious genetic diseases, and I, I think if we could safely intervene, that it might be legitimate to do that. It might. I'm not positive. I haven't figured it out in my own mind. But I will say this, that in order to develop those techniques safely, it would probably require multiple, multiple batches of embryos to be produced and analyzed and so forth. And I'm not in favor of that. I feel like you should not use human life, even in its early stages, instrumentally like it's a raw material in a project for scientific advance. It seems to me that's a that degrades the very creature we're trying to heal. So um, I'm uneasy with the three parent embryo stuff, and I'm I'm uneasy with the with the germline genetic editing. But I think there within Catholic tradition there is at least a possibility that we might be able to separate out the gamete producing cells, modified, make the genetic modification in the gametes, replace them into the reproductive system, and let the, the couple experience a, a normal uh, process of, of sexual reproduction and produce a genetically healed child. I, I think that might, be, that might be morally acceptable at some level of advanced development. Um, Bob, I, I see your question. I'm going to get one more question from, uh, from, from the audience, Pat, Patrick. Um, if you want to uh, speak up. Yeah. Hi, professor. Thank you so much, uh, for your talk. This is very interesting. Um, I guess one question I'm having with this, um, as well as thinking a lot about having, uh, taking classes on transhumanism in the past, uh, or kind of discussing that. Um, and I guess a lot of the the pop science um, and news around this is, is just how quickly um, there's a switch from sort of 
blur between like uh, you know, um, actual scientific development and then just parlor tricks about what we can do to change what humans look like. Um, and I understand that that's kind of very, very blurry line um, that you've kind of started to explore in this talk already and that, um, and that I've had a hard time thinking through, but um, what are some ways or some approaches that you might have in mind of like trying to untangle like what, I guess if there's, if there's any sort of ways of understanding what can be valid um, in this, in this field. If I understand your question right, you're saying that we, we start out justifying what we do with very serious concerns and arguments, and then we move on to the more frivolous and personalized uses of this. Is that what you meant? Right, and, and, and on both sides, right? And both people who are very, very quick to criticize any sort of um, innovation in biology by saying, oh, but then we'll be able to change our eye color. Um, but then from the other side as well, how... Um, and transhumanist and transhumanist writings, there's always this, this kind of like, oh, but look, there's disease, um, and and then the next chapter is about everything we can do to change everything about uh, yeah. well, all these nice things we can do. I, I I'm just kind of confused by that switch that happens so easily. And, and, and yeah, it does, and I, I, it's it's fashionable thinking now to, you know, it's sort of like we're so high on everything we've done with computers that we're now thinking we're going to intervene in biology successfully. But I mean, you know, let's face it. We, we don't, we can't even run our own financial system in this civilization and, and um, interventions in the human body are billions, trillions of times more complex. Um, that's not to say there aren't justifiable and, and safe interventions, but we better go carefully because uh, we, we largely don't know what we're doing. And, and, um, Having said that, there are very real situations. As a physician, I'm I'm not I don't advocate a kind of naive naturalism to say everything is good. I I think it's part of the mandate of human existence that we that we be healers of the world. We, we come from that great deep root of Jewish tradition where the there's a, a saying at the core of Judaism. I think it's pronounced tikkun olam where it means the healing of the world and it's part of our, our role. And I, as a Christian want to want to participate in the healing of the world. I want to do good. That's why I'm, that's why I went into medicine in the first place and we can get new tools to do good. We should do it. But the, the question is, what is the relationship between the given and the good? The given is full of, of a complexity. As I said about the redwood trees, both great beauty and great turmoil, trouble, cruelty, suffering. And I, I think we just need to, to align ourselves with the deep purposes of life. It's, you know, I could lay out a few principles for how we should operate on this, this score. Um, I don't think, for example, that, that parents should, should design their babies, even if they think they would give them a social advantage, that might end up being the flavor of the month advantage that was present when the parents were were reproducing, but not when the children had grown up. Somebody commented that you might want to make a clone of, of um, Michael Jordan when cloning came in, and somebody else pointed out, yeah, but maybe it'd be interested in stamp collecting and not basketball. And and you just don't want to design people. I think we we let people where there's not a health concern. We should let nature produce its variety, and we should rejoice in an unconditional love with the variety around us. 
And so that's one principle. And there's a, there's a bunch of obvious principles that you shouldn't endanger people in ways that, that aren't serious and so forth. But in, in the large scale picture, I think what was missing, what's missing in our current civilizations, tragically, is the deep roots of spirituality that have for centuries guided our thinking on issues like this. And that means we have to have a more profound view of what it means to be su- to be a suffering individual, that we need to recognize that all suffering is is something to be addressed, but it's not something to be to trump other more significant dimensions of human life, such as love. You should never intervene in such a way that you degrade the individual personally. You should never degrade the species or or um, threaten the the balance of nature in a broad sort of way. You we need to intervene in ways that that are consistent with a large, coherent spiritual cosmology, one that takes takes into account the deep purposes. And for me, that's that those purposes are evident in the in the my faith in Christ, and 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 His witness of what was what life is about, how we participate in an order of suffering and sacrifice, but our intervention is in love through in love that's consistent with the coming of the kingdom of God, not not violating the core the core nature of our large scale purposes. There again, that's a very broad brush response, but I think. I think you must know what I mean. If we would be more deeply attuned to the to the love at the core of our religious faith, we would end up having a much clearer insight into how these technologies would be appropriately and inappropriately used. And by the way, if you're interested in what I just said, I wrote an essay that was published in the New Atlantis on St. Francis Christian love and biotechnology. And if anybody wants it, I'll send it on to Alex and you can... Uh, you can guys can read that. Um, just because we're running long, uh, a bit long on time, I'm just going to uh, go through one more question that was uh, uh, previously raised from Bob in the chat. Um, I think you briefly touched on this, but um, Bob says, I would be curious to hear your perspective um, on the ethical and moral issues surrounding other model systems, in particular human brain organoids. Uh, well, okay, Bob, that's a great one. I, I'm doing a project right now with a fourth-year medical student at Stanford who is a convert to Catholicism, and he's very thoughtful about this. It's exciting, and he, he's going to dig deep into that question. Um, that's a, It's a fairly complicated set of science, so it's not easy to give a single answer to it. But there again, just like I said in response to the first question about the marmosets, I think we should be very careful not to produce anything that that mimics human function in in the domains we think are central to human function, most specifically cognitive function, and I think and self awareness too. I also don't think, by the way, we should modify the human body in such a way that we that we create ambiguity or or disrespect the body. I testified to the Academy, National Academy of Sciences Stem Cell um, Committee, and I, I said at the time, I didn't think we should produce chimeras that produce um, animals that have human faces or human um, um, hands or human genitals. I think there's just something undignified about doing that. And likewise, I don't think we should allow humans, no matter what their self-image um, 
to modify themselves in ways where they have hooves, antlers, horns, or tails. Um, as for many brains, I think we're a long way from creating anything that I would think would have anything by way of consciousness in it. A few circuits isn't going to equal the human organism, but we need to be careful as we go, as we add, um, as we add blood supply, infusing those, we get, can make them larger. As we add sensory organs, we get input and muscle responses. Sooner or later, we're going to have to be careful that we're not producing something that is generating some kind of sense of self and awareness of a human sort. But I think we're a very long way from that. And I, I think in the meantime, it's, a, it's an extremely exciting and interesting tool for the investigation of neurobiology and the potential um, applications that will lead to cures. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited about organoids. And by the way, if, you, if you're against organoids and you're against chimeras, then you have nothing to say back to people who say, well, then we need to do it with embryos. You're, the, the great thing about these, these new procedures where we can create, cautiously create chimeras and organoids is that we can study developmental biology apart from the whole of the living human organism. And if we can do that, we can get quite a long ways into useful scientific knowledge and, and um, compassionate therapies. I don't know if that really gets to the core of what you wanted to know. If you, if you, if you have a, a secondary response, I'm willing to answer more deeply. What do you think, Bobby? Any more about it? Um, I don't know if you see in the chat, Dr. Hilbert, but um, Bob says that was great. Thanks. <laughs> Um, yeah, so just just um, just because of just because of time, I'm going to cut it off there. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for for uh, taking the time to speak to all of us today. is absolutely a pleasure. Um, this topic is definitely one to to think about and reflect on um, for all for all of us. Um, so if everyone, if we could all thank uh, Dr. Hilbert. Oh, thank you for the <laughs> good questions and and uh, thank you, Alex, and great to be with you and. And uh, as I said a second ago, the, the questions were really good, penetrating questions. Thank you. And you guys are the ones who are going to figure these things out. So uh, take them seriously. <laughs>